Hello everyone, and welcome to Cartoon Brews the Weekly. Today is Friday, October 23rd. My name is Jen Hurler, and here's some of the animation news you missed this week. There's a new content warning being placed before some films and shows on Disney+, Peanuts is leaving TV for streaming, Quibi is shutting down, Titmouse Vancouver is unionizing, and we've got an excerpt from our forthcoming Glenn Keane interview. Stay tuned! The Walt Disney Company recently launched an initiative called Stories Matter. This is a commitment to reviewing their library and adding content warnings to any projects that have things like cultural stereotypes or mistreatment of people. When Disney Plus first launched, there was talk of them editing out controversial sequences from films entirely, which caused a split between those who agreed and those who felt the edits would negatively impact the films, both due to removing the scenes as well as seeing it as a company trying to swipe its less-than-stellar moments under the rug. We've seen them do that with films such as 1946's Song of the South, which hasn't been available in decades. The only public acknowledgement of it currently is the Disney Parks ride Splash Mountain, which in June was announced would be completely overhauled as a Princess and the Frog ride. From the website, Disney reiterates, quote, Rather than removing this content, we see an opportunity to spark conversation and open dialogue on history that affects us all. We also want to acknowledge that some communities have been erased or forgotten altogether, and we're committed to giving voice to their stories as well. We can't change the past, but we can acknowledge it, learn from it, and move forward together to create a tomorrow that today can only dream of." End quote. An advisory council of various third-party organizations, such as the African American Film Critics Association, Respectability, GLAD Media Institute, the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, and more help guide the company's decisions. On films deemed to have insensitive material, the same disclaimer will appear, saying the following. This program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. These stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. Disney is committed to creating stories with inspirational and aspirational themes that reflect the rich diversity of the human experience around the globe. To learn more about how stories have impacted society, please visit www.disney.com forward slash stories matter. On the site, Disney has a few films listed with examples of why that particular film has a disclaimer. For example, the description of Peter Pan reads as follows. The film portrays native people in a stereotypical manner that reflects neither the diversity of native peoples nor their authentic cultural traditions. It shows them speaking in an unintelligible language that repeatedly refers to them as, quote, redskins, an offensive term. Peter and the Lost Boys engage in dancing, wearing headdresses, and other exaggerated tropes, a form of mockery and appropriation of Native people's culture and imagery. Others explicitly listed on the site with explanation are The Aristocats, Dumbo, and Swiss Family Robinson. We've seen in the past with content warnings from companies like Warner Brothers that there is a middle ground of acknowledging past transgressions without removing them. Censoring these only buries crucial conversations about our country and the world's ongoing understandings of race and cultural depictions in media and how they have real-world effects towards how we view and treat others. Some have argued that the warnings are still a bit sugar-coated, which I personally agree with, especially given that they all receive the exact same warning. To contrast that, the messaging in front of some Warner Brothers cartoons have been praised by many people and reads as follows. The cartoons you are about to see are products of their time. They may depict some of the ethnic and racial prejudices that were commonplace in American society. These depictions were wrong then and are wrong today. 
While the following does not represent the Warner Brothers' view of today's society, these cartoons are being presented as they were originally created, because to do otherwise would be the same as claiming these prejudices never existed. Many Warner Brothers Tom and Jerry cartoons, for example, came with blatant warnings when they were released on video or episodes were available digitally. A box set of the cartoon even included an introduction by actress Whoopi Goldberg, warning viewers of the use of caricatures in entertainment. So while this is absolutely a great start from Disney and Disney+, Plus, it feels like a little more can still be done. With Halloween just a week away, you might have noticed a particular animated special was missing from the TV lineup this year. For the first time in 54 years, since it first aired in 1966, It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown won't be airing on TV, but instead is streaming exclusively on Apple TV+, leaving my boomer parents high and dry. To assuage fans, it will be available for free from October 30th through November 1st, so now I have to teach my parents how to use their smart TV. Thanks, Apple. A Charlie Brown Christmas and A Charlie Brown Thanksgiving were also annual holiday staples that were moved solely to digital distribution. They all moved to Apple TV Plus as part of a deal with Peanuts Worldwide, Lee Mendelssohn Film Productions, and Wild Brain, along with other classic Peanuts productions and new originals, making it the home for everything Peanuts except the 2016 Blue Sky Studios animated feature, The Peanuts Movie, which is currently residing on Disney Plus. Apple TV Plus original and Emmy-nominated Snoopy in Space recently announced a second season, and new specials for New Year's Eve, Earth Day, and Mother's Day were also announced. There's also a 70th anniversary documentary in the works, as well as a new series titled The Snoopy Show, which joined Emmy award-winning Peanuts in Space, Secrets of Apollo 10. So, there's a lot more Peanuts coming. ABC had been airing the Peanuts holiday special since 2001, but now Apple TV Plus has both the broadcast and digital rights, Vulture reported. Apple TV Plus plans to make the Thanksgiving and Christmas specials available for free during their respective holidays as well. Quibi, unfortunately, seemed to be in and out of the media landscape just as quickly as some of the quick bites it promised users. The Wall Street Journal broke the news this Wednesday of the nearly $2 billion startup shuttering after only about six months of operating. Started by long-term animation executive Jeffrey Katzenberg and business executive Meg Whitman, the two reportedly held video calls with investors and staff on Wednesday discussing said shutdown. Some investors at the company include major Hollywood studios such as Disney, Sony Pictures Entertainment, Warner Media, NBC Universal, and more, as well as venture capital firms, banks, individual investors, and more. There are over a hundred shows and films on Quibi, each designed to be watched either vertically or horizontally on a phone and viewed in increments of less than 10 minutes. From the get-go, big names like Katzenberg's DreamWorks co-founder Steven Spielberg, Guillermo del Toro, and others were creating and starring in projects, while many speculated the lifespan of a service charging $5 to $8 for what many argue people already have access to for free. Something notable about Quibi was that filmmakers on the platform retained the rights to their projects, and after seven years, the rights would return to them. Now with the shutdown, a lot of projects would appear to be in limbo, and how and when creators get the rights back to their work is unknown. Of the initial $1.75 billion raised, it's estimated that about $350 million of that remains. Katzenberg mentioned to the Wall Street Journal that the company is returning that capital rather than pursuing a new strategy. This will also result in around 200 employees losing their jobs. It's unclear what will become of the projects in development there as well, as well as which of the various investors will take the biggest hits. Whitman said, quote, 
We made the difficult decision to wind down the business, return cash to our shareholders, and say goodbye to our talented colleagues with grace. We continue to believe that there is an attractive market for premium short-form content. Over the coming months, we will be working hard to find buyers for these valuable assets who can leverage them to their full potential." End quote. Past attempts to sell the programming, as well as the whole streaming service, have been unsuccessful. Interestingly, reactions to the news were instant and almost gleeful in an I-told-you-so sort of way. Honestly, the word schadenfreude instantly comes to mind. While many find it fun and easy to mock the project, and did so right at the get-go, I personally find the whole thing to be an interesting and sad case study, resulting in a loss of jobs and money that could have gone to new stories and new filmmakers. There were a lot of things that contributed to Quibi's shuttering. In their letter, Whitman and Katzenberg spoke specifically of two, quote, because the idea itself wasn't strong enough to justify a standalone streaming service or because of our timing. Unfortunately, we will never know, but we suspect it's been a combination of the two, end quote. Timing, that is, launching a platform meant to specialize in bite-sized bits of content for people on the go during the one year in recent history where being on the go was a threat to one's health and safety, was certainly not something anyone could have anticipated, to be fair. There were certainly other little things people can add to the reasons for its failure. Launching without a smart TV app, limiting only to mobile use, lack of screenshots meant no shareable content. Critics have spoken out at the generally subpar quality of many of its films and shows. It's also just a crowded field. Since this time last year, we saw Apple TV+, Disney+, HBO Max, and Peacock all launch and launch with back catalogs of familiar IPs, as well as familiar and free places like YouTube and TikTok. In terms of animated content, there were a handful of shows that had begun streaming, such as Gloop World, a stop-motion show from Rick and Morty co-creator Justin Roiland. Hopefully, the shows released and in development will find new avenues to exist. This Tuesday, it was announced that Titmouse's Vancouver branch has joined the Animation Guild, specifically IATSE Local 938. The British Columbia-based branch of Titmouse had a 98% positive vote of the 87% of workers who voted. The vote took place on October 8th. Titmouse Vancouver is reportedly the first animation studio in the province of British Columbia to unionize. Oasis Animation in Montreal unionized last year. Notably, that whole studio didn't unionize, though. Only its animators have created a union thus far. Matt Loeb, IATSE's international president, had this to say, quote, Today, workers at Titmouse Vancouver sent a clear message. There is strength in the union. Animation workers in Los Angeles have benefited from representation by the IATSE for years, and we look forward to representing animation workers in Canada, end quote. IATSE's local 938's Vanessa Kelly said, quote, there had been enthusiasm in Vancouver to form an animation union for years. This overwhelming mandate from Titmouse workers is part of a groundswell across our industry. This vote is the first step in acknowledging animation workers as vital members of our industry, deserving a voice in shaping and improving it. The courage of Titmouse workers makes this first step possible." End quote. Next comes developing a collective agreement with Titmouse management and workers through IATSE. Titmouse, which was founded 20 years ago by Chris and Shannon Pranowski, also has offices in LA and New York and employs over 700 people. The Vancouver branch opened in 2013 and employs over 300 workers there. Collectively, they've worked on projects such as Star Trek Lower Decks, The Midnight Gospel, Star Wars Galaxy of Adventure, Critical Role's The Legend of Vox Machina, and more. 
Titmass is only one of several big animation studios that reside in Vancouver. There's an estimated 8,000-plus animation workers in British Columbia at dozens of animation, VFX, and gaming studios. So here's hoping to see that groundswell Vanessa Kelly spoke of. IADSE is encouraging animation workers across Canada to reach out to them about steps to forming a union at their animation studio. The last thing we have for you are some excerpts taken from an interview I did last week with Glenn Keane, whose directorial debut, Over the Moon, was released on Netflix today. The full video interview will be published next week on Cartoon Brew's new event platform, In Between Animation. For the record, there are no spoilers in these parts of the interview that I have for you. One of the first things I asked him, of course, was how he was feeling leading up to the release of the film. It's very exciting. Uh, you know, this, this film is, and I feel like I put truly me into every frame of it. Even drawing uh, is such a big part of this. I drew more for this movie than I did for Little Mermaid. Uh, every shot in the movie has got yeah. drawings in it somehow. Later, Glenn got to discussing being drawn to the character of Fei-Fei as a challenge to get her performances right and handle a character that goes through many complex emotions over the course of the film. Well, she, she's the product of both parents. Both are in her DNA. Mm -hmm. um, I just find that that's the most fascinating thing is animating um, <clears throat> what I was taught by Frank and Ollie, and they would say, Glenn, don't animate what the character is doing. Animate what the character is thinking and feeling. And this character was going to be constantly in the movie. What I wanted to show was the moment of discovery in her eyes that see the thinking happening. Don't have that happen elsewhere. Make it the central point. Like yeah. there's this one moment, there's a shot, one of my favorite in the movie is when Fei-Fei sees Mrs. Zhang and her dad's hand touch. And it's not just a casual one. There's love in that mm -hmm. touch. And she, and horror in her eyes. <laughs> yes. Back to her and nothing's happening except just this subtle little the eyebrows yeah. lift and then the lower corners of the mouth oh, go down as her world turns upside down. You feel so much. How, how can you communicate that if it's not in the most subtle little movements? And um, that, that's what really drew me to, to wanting to animate or direct her. Yeah. When did it become a musical? Well, it was not written as a musical. And as I was reading it, I was very aware of the, the depth of the story and where it was going to go. And the lessons that you're going to have to learn were very adult and mm -hmm. difficult. And they could be, it could be a very dark story. Um, not that dark is, there's something wrong with that, but it, it needs to be um, the kind of a story that children and adults want to be part of. Like they're drawn to it, like there's a, a light shining out of this. That It was very important that we, we have songs that are moving the story forward. Like you, you put a rocket in them and 
Now yeah. the story is launched forward. So even the moment where Feifei is singing Rocket to the Moon, I, I really want to animate that moment of discovery and see that point where she makes the decision. Those are the things that you don't want to skip. And put it in the middle of the song where she says, I'm going to build a rocket to the moon. You know, she's, she's going, she realizes it. And all of the songs became ways of emotionally telling that story that lifts you up. It's not so much an intellectual thing that we are trying to get our point across, but an emotional one. Yeah. And even the symbols, I mean, have, have somebody like Chin alongside of, of her who's constantly being an illustration of what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to go through the thing that seems impossible. And, or her running away from problems, running away from what's hard. Mm -hmm. You can't run away further than go to the dark side of the moon. <laughs> That's true. Oh, I had to think of it like that. I also asked some specific questions about his experience directing other animators. He talked about his new experience of having the animators shoot their own reference footage here. When you worked on Tangled, that was sort of a, a transition period at Disney where a lot of the animators were maybe more traditional 2D animators and they were switching over to CG. Um, but then your experience working with Sony Pictures Imageworks on this one was more people that, you know, their background was probably only in CG animation. So was there any sort of difference that you may have noticed in their approach to shots or blocking or performances that might've been different, especially like as a character animator yourself? Well, well, you're, you're touching on an area that was so important for me was the animation. And we, we were working with Sasha, who is just a fantastic lead, uh, who knew their team intimately. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the kind of performance we needed, looking for female animators as well, who would relate to Fei-Fei and Chang'e, looking for Asian artists that could relate to the culture and help me yeah. understand the culture I was stepping into. Early on, I had suggested that we approach it like uh, animating Ariel. I had Sherry Stoner come in as a model for Ariel um, to kind of bring a cohesiveness. And um, uh, Sasha said, well, you know, Glenn, I really would like it if we could have the animators shoot their own live action film themselves mm -hmm. because then they will, they'll have to crawl into the skin. They will know the emotions. And for this film, more than any other, I just felt like you're, you're right. I mean, if you can get those animators to really feel it, they are going to invest something surprising and remarkable. And there, that was one of the most joyful things is watching the different animators act out their shots. Yeah. They would have different versions of it. And I could say, this part of here is really good. That part of there is really cool. But, and then I could do a drawing and say, but I'm thinking of something like this in the middle there. And um, it was, uh, you could actually have a live action version of this movie. <laughs> animators cut together um, and it was, Gosh, it was dizzyingly wonderful to see, and the, our animation sessions were um, were a joy to be part of. 
Glenn also talked about his experience trying to learn new things on this project and trying to design and portray the characters in a unique way, leading to him relying on new young talent. It was very important for me also to, to, to shake me away from a traditional Disney look. <clears throat> That's, that was difficult because, you know, that's in your DNA. Yeah. And I was designing the characters and um, but something didn't feel right about it. It's like, why does this look just like it's a Disney movie? I, it's got <laughs> to have something different. It's like a song that's stuck in your head that you can't stop singing. Yeah. And it's like, oh, how do I, how do I think fresh and different here? And <clears throat> but my hand always wanted to go on a familiar path. And, yeah. and I was looking on Facebook. Um, this is very early on. Um, and there was this drawing of Ariel um, from part of your world. And I thought, oh, there's one of my drawings. It's like, wait, <clears throat> it's not one of my drawings. No, whoever's doing that is kind of painting it with color. It's like, it's not my drawing. It's actually better. I, I like it a lot. What is she doing? This is this girl, Brittany Myers, young, early 20s. And I just felt like, I want that in yeah. what I do. And I said to Jenny, uh, my producer, I said, I want, to, I want that in my drawings. She said, well, let's hire her. Oh, oh, well, yeah, we can do that, can't we? <laughs> yeah, so Brittany came in and I, working with her, working with Celine Desrumeaux, mm. I, I surrounded myself with, with young talent that I felt like I could learn from. Again, this was just a small sampling of the full interview, which we'll have next week on Cartoon Brew's new event platform, In Between Animation. So be sure to visit cartoonbrew.com to find the latest on that. And that's it for this episode of Cartoon Brew's The Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. To keep up with the latest in the animation industry, be sure to visit cartoonbrew.com and tune in next time for another roundup of stories. Take care.